0: If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Morning. Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. Uh, I'm one of the lead pastors here. Uh, Yes, I did get a new haircut. So listen, uh, we've talked about uh, the plurality of leadership in our church and how we really enjoy diversity because those differences actually help us to complement one another. And I have some elders on our team who I love dearly that can only grow hair right here. And so I decided I would fill the gap in and that together we could make one whole head of hair. I'm going to get a little t-shirt that says, I'm with him. Well, with that out of the way. We ended the book of Ephesians after 18 months uh, with, as Paul is, is, is concluding the letter, he asked for a prayer request, and his prayer request is, will you pray for me that I may have the courage to boldly proclaim the gospel, that God will give me the words that are necessary at the points where uh, I'm under adversity, where I'm on trial, where I'm in front of people to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel because that's the only reason that we're here left on earth. And so we're going to transition into a series where we as pastors and elders work on equipping you, the church, on how to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This this makes logical sense, right? Okay. That's our job. That's why we're here. You are only here on earth to worship the Lord and proclaim the gospel. Otherwise, we might as well go home because we're going to have a much better party in heaven than we're ever going to have for a Super Bowl here. Amen. read the the Bible about what is in store for you or if you you are a child of God in heaven. It is far greater than anything that you're gonna get here on earth. In fact, there's no reason to wait here. There's no reason for Jesus to tarry if we don't have something that he's asked us to do because I would much rather be in heaven. Read the stories of heaven. They're not boring. You're not sitting around playing some weird harp on a cloud. That is not what the Bible describes at all. It is a feast. There is a banquet. We're all together, joyous, without disease, without death, without pain, without tears, celebrating, worshiping God, proclaiming his glory, eating at the new feast, around the dinner table, in the new Jerusalem where the new wine is pouring and even the Baptists aren't mad. (laughs) We're Baptists, it's okay if I say that, it's still gentle, we're making fun of ourselves. Our our, our reason to be here, it's not to get rich. It's not to retire. Our reason to be here is not to build fame or notoriety. Our reason to be here is not accomplishment. Our reason to be here is to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And therefore, it's the one thing that we probably should be pretty good at. And I would submit to you that in American Christianity, it's one of the things we're probably pretty terrible at pretty awful at. So we want to talk about it. Now, there's this uh, uh, little thing called the Roman's Road. It's, it's, quite frankly, it's just a system. It's been around for about 70 years. I'm going to coin the phrase, and it's five verses in the book of Romans that walk through just explaining the gospel in about a, the most simplistic terms that you can imagine. And so over the course of five weeks, we're going to take one verse each week, and we're, we're going to explain which part of this journey through explaining the gospel that each of these is, why each of these verses matter, how you would explain these. And then what is the most important part, I believe of explaining the gospel, the mystery of the gospel to another person is this part. And that is it needs to include your personal story. And and let me explain why. If it's not real and transformative in your life, why should the other person care? If it hasn't impacted your life, it hasn't changed your life, it hasn't changed the direction of your life, it it doesn't seem like a miracle to you, why would it seem like a miracle to someone else? In Tim Keller's book on preaching, one of the things that he talks about in preparation for a sermon for pastors is this, hey, pastor, if in the preparation for the sermon Sunday, you did not experience something, why would you expect the congregation to experience Therefore, you should only expect the congregation to experience the the things that you have. Why would you expect God to do miraculous things in your congregation if it was dry and dusty for you all week? And it puts a burden on anyone that would open up the word of God to preach to someone else. The first, coming to the Lord humbly and asking God to do work through his word in you during the week so that by the time you get to Sunday, I can be expected that his Holy Spirit will come and move And pierce hearts in the pews. So we're going to open up the text. And we're going to start with the first verse in the Romans road. Which is Romans 3.23. It's a really short verse. It says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're going to talk about three things that are part of the human situation today. I was looking for really cool analogies about the situation, and there was this guy who had a nickname in a show years ago on MTV called Jersey Shore. You guys remember this? See, some of you remember this. It's pretty obscure, and I'm definitely dating myself at this point. And I thought, I'd never watched the show, I only saw clips because it was just really awful, but I, I thought his nickname was The Situation, and I Googled it, and I found out that his abs were nicknamed The Situation. Now, I don't know if your abs have a nickname, but my abs would have a nickname. It wouldn't be the situation, it would be the circumference. We're going to talk about the human situation. The human situation is this, and I, and I want to explain, the Bible's going to explain this, Romans is going to explain this, any work in apologetics, which is that analytically or logically, just practically looking at the human condition and, and what's wrong with this world should not have been the same, same uh, general idea. And it's these three things that I want to establish with you today in this message. Number one, until we acknowledge a problem, there is no need for a solution. It's pretty logical, right? Like you ever had someone come to your door and knock on your door and they're trying to solve a problem and you're like, I don't have that problem, but they really want you to buy the solution. You're like, yeah, but I don't have that problem. Why? You go to the next house. Listen, go talk to Karen. She definitely has that problem. I owe a dollar to the Karen jar in my office. Every time I use that (laughs) until we acknowledge a problem, there's no need for a solution. Number two, until we acknowledge the severity of a problem, there's no need for urgency. There are levels of problems, right? Like, if you go to your friend's house and they haven't mowed their lawn, but they don't find that very important, it's not a big problem, there's not a lot of urgency for them to get out there and mow their lawn. Until we acknowledge the severity of a problem, there's no need for urgency. And third, until we acknowledge the impossibility of a solution, there's no need for God. Until we acknowledge the impossibility of a solution, there's no need for God. All right. For all sin to fall short of the glory of God. that starts with something that we need to establish. And if you're speaking to somebody about what this verse means, and we're starting with the gospel, we start with the for all. And and, and if I was explaining that biblically, I would actually stay in the same chapter of Romans, and I would turn earlier in Romans 3, and I'd, I'd turn to where Paul is going to quote an Old Testament psalm from Psalm 14 in Romans 3, 10 through 12. He'd actually explain it this way. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul is establishing that every single person in the history of the world is born a sinner. What you need to understand if we're biblically explaining the problem of sin is that actually what we have to explain is that you and I were born into sin. And there's a relationship here that we oftentimes get backwards, and the reason that we get it backwards is because we love our own self-righteousness. You are not a sinner because at some point you sinned. That's not how that works. You only ever sinned because you were born a sinner. It was inevitable. You were born into sin. There was no chance. The Bible would actually say it this way King David in Psalm 51 5 would say, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, if you read that story without context, you'd be like, Man, what did David's mom do? <laughs> Sounds kind of juicy. David didn't come from a broken family. But what is he talking about? I was born into sin. This is the human condition. Or the prophet Jeremiah would, would say it this way in Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? This, this verse right here, the heart is desperately or is deceitful, more than all else, and is desperately sick is why we tell you that the Disney movies are all wrong. Don't trust your heart. Don't trust your emotions. Don't trust your feelings. They're lying to you. Just follow your heart. No, please do not. That will get you into all sorts of chaos because your heart is sick. It's like following a blind guide. Actually, I think a blind guide would have more chance than my desperately sick heart. Because the blind guide might stumble into the right path. My desperately sick heart is never going to stumble into the right path. Now, how would I explain this concept to someone who doesn't believe in the authority of the Bible? Uh, Andy Stanley uh, is, a, is a preacher in uh, Atlanta, I think, has a, has a big church. He actually took over a church from his dad that was big, and he made it really big. I mean, he's got a massive church, and he's constantly in the news for some sort of controversy because Christians love controversy, especially when they're backbiting each other, and... Uh, in 2013, he started this series of apologetics for people that just were really, really far from God and, and had no context of Christianity at all, and he made a statement that people think is controversial, which I find to not be controversial at all, and he said that for many individuals, because they didn't grow up in church and because they have no understanding of the Bible, and they, they, culturally they don't even have an understanding of the Bible, that the Bible is not an adequate starting place for them. And what he was trying to say is, listen, for someone that's a complete atheist that doesn't believe that the Bible is anything other than a bunch of old writings, uh, you've got to start somewhere else first. You have to start almost like looking at the world. You got to start with nature or you start with science or you start with reason and you'll get to the Bible, but you can't start there because they don't believe it. And people, people lost their minds when he said that. And I was like, guys, apologists have been doing this for years. When Paul is at Mars Hill and he's talking about the unknown God, he's not talking about scripture. He's actually engaging their culture with reason so that he can point to scripture, but they don't even understand what scripture is yet. And, and, and listen, we are no longer under the what we would call Christendom. Christendom was this idea that we have a general framework of Christianity in our culture because we're in America. America was founded on all of these Christian principles with Christianity as the default religion and faith. And so such a large majority of the people in America had such a basis in the Bible that if I said something was in the Bible to you, you would then naturally have taken that as faithful. Oh, okay. How well, that makes sense? Cause it's in the Bible. We don't live in that place anymore. It's 2023 and, and, and the number of people that immediately would give, you know, gravitas and, and, and real like, like, uh, weight to something because you said it's in the Bible have dwindled to a very small number. In fact, I would even submit to you that there's a huge chunk of our population that if you said it's in the Bible would automatically dismiss it. They would think less of it. That's the culture we live in. And then the good news is that the Bible speaks to all of that because the Bible didn't just speak to Jews who had the ancient writings and what they called the scriptures. Instead, it spoke to Jews. It spoke to Greeks. It spoke to uh, all of these different ethnicities from people from Ethiopia all the way through the Roman Empire And so it speaks to people that had no background in church or in the temple or in the synagogue. And so it teaches us how to engage those cultures as well. So how do we engage someone who doesn't believe in the authority of the Bible? We do that through logic and observation. The Bible will actually speak to this as well. Um, And and we're going to take a look a a little bit today at C.S. Lewis and his book, Mere Christianity. If you ever want a good starting point to really engage someone who has just no background with the Bible or no background with Christianity, Mere Christianity is one of the best books I have ever read in my life. If you don't know C.S. Lewis's story, he's an atheist. And God brings him to faith and saves him through reason and logic. How many of you, we're just sitting around one day pondering the mysteries of the universe and God saved you through that. That's rare. And it's absolutely encouraging and amazing. It's this miracle where he just walks through how God began to show him these things about the human condition, about the human problem, about subjective and objective morality. And, and he began to just question these things. And he realizes that, that came from God and he builds a book based on the view of an atheist coming to faith in Jesus Christ. A great book for all, every single one of us, part of the human condition have sinned. Now, what is it that, that, that this, what does have sinned mean? You may have some context of sin because you're in church today, but if you're talking to someone that's never been in church, how do you explain sin? That thing that happens in Las Vegas, right? That's why they call it the sin city. No, I thought it was something you picked up at the gift shop. Have sinned. What is sin? Sin, in the word that is most often used to describe sin in the Bible, means missing the mark. Missing the mark. You're, you're off. So you think of uh, shooting an arrow at a target and missing the mark. Yesterday I was at a clay shoot. A bunch of men out with shotguns shooting little clay discs that fly in the air. Let me just tell you, there was a lot of missing the mark. In my life. But they were very frightened. Okay? I may not have hit them, but they knew I was around. <laughs> Missing the mark. You know, the irony of like a hundred guys with shotguns all shooting is that the biggest injury was someone cut their finger on a little cardboard box and started bleeding. And I was like, listen, if that's the worst we got, we're doing okay. Missing the mark. What mark? Biblically, we know that missing the mark is missing God's standard. And so some people will tell you that in evangelism, before you can establish anything else, you need to establish God's law. And until you establish God's law, you can't talk about the rest of evangelism. And I would say that is one good way to start. It's not the only way to start, but at some point, you do have to get to the idea that there is an objective standard not a subjective standard. A subjective standard means what's right for me may not be right for you, and what's right for you may not be right for me. We'll just all kind of make up our own standards as we go. We do have to get to the idea of a an objective standard if we're going to explain the concept of sin and this is where we get a lot of fun because we're actually in a time and culture and this is not the first time this has happened this is probably the third or fourth major era this has happened where we are rushing as quickly as we can toward the idea of subjective morality look around our culture right now and look at all the things that are now aren't right or wrong it just depends on who you are and how you feel There's no real right, there's no real wrong. The Christian would say, yes, there is an objective standard. It was established by God. He's the designer and creator of everything. Therefore, he's the designer and creator of the standard. Because logically, it wouldn't make a lot of sense if you at least believe that there was a creator, that God would create everything and then not create a standard, but leave you up to coming up with it. Because we know how that's gone. C.S. Lewis describes this in his book *Mere Christianity*, where um, he talks about: Have you ever observed two people arguing? Where um, you know, somewhere in that argument, a lot of times they'll say, "Hey, that's not right. What you did, that's not right." What are they saying? There's there's some sort of standard, and you've broken it. You see this with little kids, right? That's not fair. That's not right. Something's wrong. It's not supposed to be that way. Do, do you know that every culture in history, no matter where on the earth and no matter at what time of, of recorded human history, have generally had just about the same framework of morality? Oh, there's differences, of course. But at the very center, we don't have a culture on record, where lying was socially awesome, we we don't now. We could talk about like like you know trying to cover up something or trying to pretend you're something you're not. But but integrity has always been right. Lying has always been wrong. Every culture. I'm not saying it didn't happen. Of course it's happened. It happens all the time. But it's never been looked upon as positive. Going and taking someone else's stuff. Has never been looked upon as a good thing. Has it happened? Of course. Has power been abused? Absolutely. But no one ever felt like when they got their stuff stolen, yeah, that's right. Woo! That sure is good. No, there's something inside of us that goes, that's wrong. That's not fair. You broke the rule. What rule? Well, that's a great question. What rule? While cultures have shifted and human morality has moved, there are attributes of human behavior that have always been seen as morally good and there are things that have always been seen as morally bad. When you're lied to, when you're lied to, when someone lies to you, when you feel a sense of betrayal, no one has to tell you that that's morally wrong. You don't have to go read a law somewhere that that's morally wrong. You know It's wrong. Something inside of you says, that's wrong. Where do these things come from? We could argue that our our culture that has raised us tells us that, but then how have they spanned, how have these same things spanned every era of history across all cultures, across all continents? How do we have so much similarity in morality across all of human history? The Bible would say that that's because God has written his very law, his very standard on our hearts, so that we know what is right, we just don't do it. Let me take it a step further, uh, and I can't remember if this is in Mere Christianity or if I read this somewhere else. Um, but it, it's actually really highlights the problem with morality and the way we see morality, and that's this: the Bible says, even if, or uh, this this author I can't remember who it is said, even if you don't believe in the idea of a of a uh, objective moral, like objectively there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. And you buy into the idea that everyone has their own standard and they should set their own standard. What's right for you is right for you. What's wrong for you is wrong for you. So on and so forth. The problem is you and I can't even live up to that. And you're thinking, well, yeah, I can. And the example is this. Let's say we, we put a little recorder, a little recording device. And we hung it around your neck. And all we did is we only recorded the times where you said, man, you you really shouldn't do blank Or man, you really should live this way. And you only recorded the times where you made a thought or a statement about how things were right or wrong. How people lived the right way or they lived the wrong way. So all we did is during the course of your life, we recorded your thoughts and your comments about what you believed was right and what you believed was wrong. So when you saw someone lying, you're like, people shouldn't lie. And when you saw someone stealing, you said, people shouldn't steal. And when you saw someone overweight, you said, people should take more care of their nutrition. And when you saw someone get up late, you said, people shouldn't be lazy and we just recorded your own thoughts and your own feelings and then when you died and you went to heaven God would pull out the recorder oh someone said oh oh that's exactly how I would feel and all God would do was sit you down put the little recorder on the table maybe some angels would gather around as witnesses and we'd press play And we'd listen to every thought, every opinion, every sideways comment, every assertion you made about how people should live, how they should be, how they shouldn't be, what they shouldn't do. And then we took your life from start to finish and we compared your life to that standard. Feeling pretty good about yourself right now? No one could live up to their own standard because we're that inconsistent. And the author of this example was essentially saying, listen, even if you didn't believe in a objective morality, you can't live up to your own morality. And it highlights the human condition that somewhere deep within us is a problem and we don't seem to have the power to fix it. There's this problem deep down And we kind of know it, and we do a lot to cover it up, and we do a lot to ignore it, and we do a lot, we we put a lot of noise in our lives so we don't have to focus on it. But if things get a little quiet, and we get a little bit of time for introspection, we begin to realize that man, I'm kind of a hot mess. Amen? And the problem with the biblical standard. Is that any sin, any deviation from God's standard, from God's righteousness, from His order, any deviation is at odds with His righteousness and He cannot mix His nature, His righteous nature, with sin. And so it doesn't matter if we're talking about one sin or 10 sins or 10,000 sins, any sin now separates us from His perfect righteousness. I read a quote, says this, says, There are no degrees of sin either. When it comes to our ability to reach the glory of God, sure, you may be better than the next person, but that just means you have fewer reasons to incur God's wrath. The problem is it only takes one sin, one time to fall short of God's glory. And I can say with 100% complete certainty that every person except for one has sinned at least once. Better than doesn't matter when any sin is enough to keep us from experiencing God's glory. The opposite of sinfulness is righteousness. Righteousness is an attribute of God. He is incapable of sin and therefore is righteous. It is also a requirement of anyone who wants relationship with God. To be near the righteous God, we also must be righteous. If we are sinful, even a little, then we are by definition not righteous. Paul says it like this in his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works, behavior, of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, those who try to be righteous on their own, I try really hard to live a fair and moral life, Those who try to be righteous on their own by following God's law or just trying to be a good person will be cursed. There's no path that we can take on our own power that leads us to God's glory because we are incapable of righteousness on our own. So we have, every one of us, we have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the mark. We've all missed the mark. We all have sin in us. Whether we call that small or great or some variation of it actually is immaterial. The fact that there's sin means we are not righteous. And what happens? We fall short of the glory of God. Fall short of the glory of God. Now, uh, this is the most common translation of this verse, fall short. And in reality, it actually is a really bad translation of the Greek word. The Greek word that's used here, that we translate into fall short actually doesn't mean fall short. It means absent of. It means properly translated. it wouldn't sound as good. It'd be kind of weird with the, with the tenses, but it means we have all sinned and there is no righteousness of God. There's no glory of God in us. We are without it. It is absent from us. There's there's another verse in Romans that Paul will use the same Greek word and explain what this means. Because we, Romans 3.23 is essentially saying, for every single person has sinned, and because of sin, God's glory is not in us. So the thing that is very wrong, the thing that you kind of wriggles at the back of your mind when you think about it, there's just something's not right, is the absence of God's glory from us because when he created us, when he breathed life into us in the garden, it was always intended to be with his glory, with him. We were created for relationship with God and so the absence of God's glory in our life should feel wrong because it is wrong. All of creation groans for him to come again. Romans 1 would talk about this, about where God's glory went. It says it this way in Romans 1, 22 and 23. It says, claiming to be wise, it's talking about hum- humans. Claiming to be wise, that's you and I, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You and I were created to be worshipers of God, to be indwelt with the glory of God, and we traded him away. We traded away the creator of all things in exchange for the created things that he made. At the heart of what happens in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, is Eve and Adam both are essentially trading away the creator for a created thing? I don't want the creator, I want something that he made. And the interesting thing about that I love about the Old Testament, I love reading through the Bible and looking at the pattern that God has established in this ark that we will walk through, even just in these five verses from Romans, what we'll see is the same arc of human history. Uh, I believe that part of the reason that, that so many centuries go by in the Old Testament are recorded for us is so that it is inescapable for us to realize that the same cycle of depravity from people is absolutely inescapable. Every time you think, I wouldn't do it that way, all you really need to do is go back and look at the number of generations that have absolutely done it that way. So you, we can get off our high horse thinking we, we'd we be the ones that would do it right. No, you wouldn't. Over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, they trade away the glory of God. He takes a people. He brings a people and says, you'll be my people, and I'll bless you for no reason other than I'm worth it. And they still trade away the glory of God. Man, just just read about Just read Exodus when he takes the people out of Egypt and you can't get that many chapters before you're like, I'm so tired of people. We're awful. God has to be such a patient God to have dealt with us. And that's just that story. I'm not even talking about your life yet. (laughs) Think think about the pattern of people in the Old Testament trading away the glory of God. I just think about Eve Eve. I made this point in another venue that I was talking about talking in recently. Did you realize that in the Garden of Eden there was no Ten Commandments? There, was no, there were no laws. There was no law against envy because they didn't even know what that was. There was no law against murder. They didn't know what that was. There were no laws. They lived in a world that was not only perfect, there were no rules. There was one rule, don't eat that one tree. And we messed it up. But what is, at the heart of what Eve does, what does she do? She trades away the the presence of God who's walking with them every day, living with them, communing with them. They have this perfection around them. She trades that away for an apple, a created thing, for the idea that maybe she could be like God. She trades away the glory of God for something he created. Fast forward to another story, Um, Jacob has, Jacob has these two sons. Anyone remember the story of Esau? It's just a weird story, right? They say he's so hairy, they think he's an animal when he's born. Come on, that's that's weird. I have a nephew like that. Esau is the the eldest, so he has the birthright. And on his lineage, God has placed the covenant. So so God's glory and his promise and his goodness and his blessing are so palpable on this line of, of this family that when they go into foreign lands, the foreign rulers will look at them and go, we know you're blessed, so how can we help you? How blessed do you have to be that foreign dignitaries come to you and ask what they can do for you because they see God's hand on your life? I don't know what that looks like, but it's so visible that people that don't believe in God are like, listen, we we want everything to be good with you because we see God's hand on you. They're that blessed. And here's Esau, right? He's in line. He's firstborn. He's going to get this blessing, and he trades it away. The glory of God... For a bowl of soup. Listen, you thought you were a bad deal maker. There's hope. You're not Esau. If you got more than some Campbell's Chunky out of it, there's someone worse. He trades away his birthright for a blessing of the glory of God on his family that is so palpable, You don't dismiss this, that every foreigner and every dignitary in every foreign land sees what's happening and he still trades it away for a bowl of soup. How about Judas? At some point in the three years that the disciples are around Jesus... Every one of them, at at different times really, we kind of watch, it's very very interesting to watch it happen in, in scripture. Every one of them comes to a realization that Jesus is the son of God. He is not just a carpenter from Nazareth. He's not just a good teacher. He's not a prophet. He's the son of God. So Judas... Walking with the Son of God for three years, watching him walk on water, turn water into wine, raise people from the dead, heal countless people from blindness and lameness and disease, trades away the glory of God for a bag of silver. Lest you believe this is only happening to characters in the Bible, I just want you to think for a second that the the human condition of sin is this. It's that you and I and our hearts are so deceitful and so wayward that every single one of us is willing to trade away the glory of God for some created thing. The question is not whether or not you would have traded away or did trade away the glory of God. That's not the question. The Bible already says you did. The question is, what'd you trade them away for? What'd you get in the deal? Bowl of soup? Bag of silver? Apple and a promise to be like God? Good job? Spouse you wanted? Some kids? Financial success? That boat that you really thought was going to solve all your problems? Abs so good they get their own nickname? <laughs> What'd you trade them away for? Not did you trade them away. What did you trade them away for? That's the human situation. Until we acknowledge a problem, there's no need for a solution. As you're explaining Romans 3.23 to someone, you're explaining the problem so that we can explain the solution until we acknowledge the severity of the problem. There's no need for urgency. Is this lack of relationship with God a big deal? Yes. Why is it a big deal? I would submit to you that one of the hardest, the reasons that you see uh, Jesus talk about how hard it will be for a wealthy person to get into heaven is not because rich people inherently are less spiritual it's not because rich people are somehow worse than poor people. The, the reason is that it's so difficult for someone with a lot of wealth to actually acknowledge the severity of the problem of lack of relationship with God because anytime God begins to really press into their hearts a conviction about what is needed, they cover that up by buying things and doing things with the money that God has blessed them with. It would be extremely difficult to explain the gospel to someone in which they think life is great. Don't have any problems. Plenty of money in the bank. I'm gonna eat, drink, and be merry. I'm gonna tear down my storehouses and build larger ones. There's a story about that in the Bible too. Until we acknowledge the impossibility of a solution, there's no need for God. Have you tried? I mean, have you really tried to live morally and realize how hard it is? The moment you think you've probably got it down, like you probably nailed it. I got this whole living righteously thing down. Then the Bible goes so far as to have Jesus pop up and say, oh, by the way, that includes your thought life. You've got to be kidding me. Because, man, I could fake it outwardly, maybe for a day or two, but inwardly, 35 seconds, 45? <laughs> my thought life. One of the analogies I used to hear my dad use all the time of, of preaching was he's, he would say, listen, if you really want to know how well you're living, all you need to know is think about how it would feel to have all of your thoughts from the week put up on the projector. making friends. (laughs) I want to take a few minutes here as, um, we kind of conclude these three points to talk about how, um, this, this so emulates or, or, or represents my story of, uh, learning what it looked like to pursue God. I, I actually got saved at a really early age and because I, I grew up in a family of faith um, we were really poor, which is probably helpful. And uh, and my parents loved the Lord. They just loved the Lord. And so I grew up thinking that was normal. And that's a blessing. But because our hearts are deceitful above all else, um, even, even though I knew all of those things, um, what grew in me was a self-righteousness. Because living in to a moral standard was the norm, because I didn't know any different, what I saw around me in the culture were people that didn't live that way. And so I began to believe it's clearly because I was better than them. I was righteous and they weren't. I loved God and they didn't. But it wasn't about God's righteousness. It was about my righteousness. It was about my sincerity of the faith. And I thought it was actually pretty easy to see. And that made me very prideful in in my own heart, for my own effort of righteousness and morality and faith. And so what happened is inevitably, when I begin to fail, when I begin to rebel from the Lord, when I begin to do things that I knew were unrighteous, I, I had an inability to inwardly align the fact that I knew these things were wrong and I thought that I was good enough not to do them and I was doing them anyways and couldn't stop. And now we had a real situation, and it wasn't a set of abs. Because I began to feel the burden of doing wrong things, knowing they were wrong things, and not feeling like I had the power to stop. And that shook me to the very foundations of my faith, because my faith was built on my own morality, my good behavior, my own righteousness. So I had tremendous doubt about the faith in general. And in college, uh, I was far from God, and God was just hounding me. He was just chasing me down. And let me tell you, when you're running from God, y'all, God has long legs. (laughs) He was relentless with me in his love. And no, no matter how I would run, he would find me. I've told the story of uh, showing up at the quad on a Sunday morning, which is where all the cafeteria was. And uh, most of them were closed. And I, and I was trying to find somewhere to eat. And there's Christian music playing at a secular university. And I'm thinking like, you're kidding me. And it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't Christian music playing. It was a church literally meeting in the cafeteria I showed up to upstairs singing songs to God. And I'm like, you've got to be joking. And I'm like, I'm out of here. And so I walk around the corner and it's the entrance to the church with a big sign that says the church is upstairs and it's sitting in front of me. I mean, if you ever ask God for a sign and he gives you a physical sign (laughs) and I'm like, you've got to be joking. So I walked upstairs and I'm like, look, I don't want any part of this. And they were like, hey, we love you. And I just acted like the biggest jerk I could act like. And they were like, yeah, Jesus loves you too. And they're inviting me into small groups and they're invited, three different people invite me to live with them when I got, uh, when I didn't have a place to live put me up in places to live, love on me. None of what I did was kind. None of my behavior toward them was loving. It was all selfish, purposefully mean. And the meaner I was, the more they hugged on me. You jerks. (laughs) And I'm fighting with God this whole time. 18 months, just fighting with him, fighting with him, fighting with him. And I'm crossing the street. I'm at USC, I'm crossing... The street from the campus uh, to where all the residences are. It's a crowd of people because all the classes just gotten out. It's people everywhere. And God audibly says to me in the middle of the intersection, Look around you. It's just kids everywhere. And He says, No one you see is happy. No one you see right now is content and satisfied with life. Every single person in the crowd around you has doubts and insecurities and failings and is depressed and doesn't know what's wrong, but you know, what's wrong, my, come on, man. And I'm weeping, walking across the street and I gave up. I gave up, which is at the very beginning of God's solution for humanity. It's this idea of surrendering. Until you're willing to stop trying to wear your own righteousness and admit that what is at the center of you has no goodness in it, not a little bit of goodness, not a certain amount of goodness, no goodness, you can't move forward. Because you can never put on God's righteousness when you haven't taken off your filthy rags. And trying to put God's righteousness on top of your own outfit never seems to work right. And so that was the day where I had to say, man, I gotta give up. And I have to figure out what it looks like to give up. I had to realize that I was trading in the glory of God for my own ambitions, my own righteousness. If you've ever tried to live really well and wondered why it seems impossible, it's because it is. That's why God sent Jesus to do an impossible task. If it wasn't impossible, we wouldn't have needed him for it. The moment that it's not impossible, you don't need God. The moment you think that you get to participate somehow first in the saving and salvation and righteousness, and Jesus will just add on the extra that you need, You've misunderstood the gospel. You've misunderstood what is at the, the center of the gospel, which is that Jesus came to do all of it, not some of it, all of it. That is at the heart of the gospel. That's what we'll be explaining over the course of this series and in the, the ver- verses that come after Romans 3.23 is this, that First, we acknowledge that there is a problem. And then, and only when we acknowledge that the problem is severe, only when we acknowledge that the problem is ours, only when we acknowledge that the problem is impossible, are we at a point where we're ready to allow God to do real work in our life. And the crazy part about this is you have an opportunity to meet with people and talk to them about this is twofold. Number one As you tell them this, you get to point to your own life as the example of how impossible it is. You don't even have to point to their life. You don't have to point to Karen's life. It's $2. (laughs) You get to point to your own life. There's a reason that eyewitness testimony is still the absolute most important Uh, evidence that you can have in a trial. There's a reason that eyewitness testimony is the thing that the Gospels and the New Testament are built upon. It's that once you have, I heard Tim Keller say this once to an atheist. An atheist said, um, Pastor Keller, is there any amount of evidence that could ever be accumulated that would get you, that would convince you, if there was enough evidence, that would convince you that, that the things that you read in the Bible are wrong? And he said, I suppose, theoretically, there's some mountain of evidence that, that, could, that, could, that I would go, that's convincing enough for me to believe that these things are wrong. He said, here's the problem with that. There's no amount of evidence that will change the work that God's done in my life. There's no amount of evidence that you can accumulate and bring to me that will change the genuineness of what God has done in me and through me and with me. And I, you could pile up the evidence, but all I could do is point to what God's done and go, you can't change this. And it is your most valuable tool as you begin to speak to others about the hope of Christ. As you get to open up the curtains to your life, yes, that means vulnerability. Yes, that means that it's going to be really awkward. I like to say, embrace the awkward. You get to point at your own life. The the deceitfulness of your own heart. The struggles of your own self-righteousness. I get to use them as the example to explain the goodness of Christ. It's Him we point to. It's Him we make much of. It's Him we're here for. If not for that, take me home now, Jesus. I'm ready for the feast. So we're going to pray right now. I'm going to pray over you. I learned recently that I've tell you all to close your eyes, you will. You're gonna close your eyes. I'm gonna pray over you. The elders and our prayer team are gonna be up here. Here's what we're gonna do while we're up here we would love to pray for you. Like it is our joy to pray for you. James 5 would say that if you're sick, you're supposed to go to the elders of the church and ask for prayer because there is great power in the prayer of a righteous man. If you want prayer, you want to know what it looks like to finally surrender all of your life to Jesus. So he can start doing work. We would love to talk to you. If you want to talk to us about next steps, getting into groups, getting baptized, coming to starting point, come talk to us. If you want to come talk to us and you don't even know what the subject is, but you just feel this compulsion, the God is moving and stirring in you and he's drawing you to him and you don't know the words. That's all right. You can come groan. We'll pray over you anyways. You move as the Lord leads you. Bow your heads. Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that you didn't just clean us up and tell us do better. You put your spirit inside of us to seal us, to convict us, to encourage us, to gift us, to guide us, God. We want to be a people, Father, that loves you, loves others and can't stop talking about you grow a desire in us God change the things we love so that we love you more change our passions and interests so that they're your passions and interests God find the people that you have architected sovereignly to bring to this time and to this place whether online or in person to hear your truth God and give them the boldness to stand up and make a decision to surrender the rest of their life. God, thank you for all the work that you do through us. No, we don't deserve to be part of idiot of it. You give us this privilege to participate with you at ministry. God, we love you. We thank you for those opportunities. We thank you for this church and how well they love each other and how well they love people far from you. God, you move people as you will, as they're sensitive to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.